Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. We are coming at you from our new studio here in Crooked Media Headquarters. See a familiar curtain. It's I a work in a, progress. I see a new fern-like thing. That's definitely a fake plant. Elijah told us we have to comment on the public access nature of the studio for those who are going to see video clips of this. This looks like for um, you listening to this, it doesn't really matter. This looks like uh, when Laura Trump was doing Trump TV. <laughs> it's, got a, it's got a real Wayne's World vibe for you millennials who like things that came before your time. <laughs> you millennials that for like your who knows parents' that favorite movies. <laughs> I love that movie. Anyway, today on the pod, uh, Tommy has an interview with Johanna Hayes, a first-time candidate and former National Teacher of the Year who could make history this fall as the first African-American Democrat ever elected to the Congress from Connecticut. Uh, we'll also talk about the latest in the Trump investigation, as well as the corrupt goons who are running Washington. Love it. How was Love It or Leave It? So good, Last John. week. Was it amazing? Birthday edition? Yes, it was a birthday edition. Uh, they made me dab. <laughs> I saw that. I saw we that. also had uh, Lauren Mayberry of Churches came by, and she did a dramatic reading of Amorosa's prologue. We had an awesome panel. It was a great show. You should check it out. What was, did, did, did Travis just put on the screen, make him dab? If he says no, chant until he dabs? Yes. It's great. <laughs> they did do that. That's such a good joke. And then I dabbed. Congrats. Thanks. You're like Paul Ryan. So listen to that for the dabbing. Um, Tommy, I know that you just recorded a, a fresh pod save the world today. I did. I talked with a uh, former deputy director, former acting CIA director. He was both Michael Morrell about the John Brennan uh, and other security, national security officials uh, security clearance dust up with President Trump over the weekend. Why is it a big deal? It's a real Donnybrook. This is a fight we should be picking. Uh, you know, we got went, went into great detail, all the context, all you need to know. So check it out. And for Pod Save the World fans and any fans of U.S. foreign policy, there's a brand new wilderness episode out Ooh. today that is called The Blob. It is about Democrats and foreign policy and national security. Ben Rhodes' favorite set of people. We got Ben Rhodes. We got Samantha Power. We got Marcy Wheeler, Jake Sullivan, all your favorites. Matt Duss. It's going to be great. <laughs> what, what are you laughing at? Just my Avengers Assemble. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, you know, we told you we were going to make an announcement. We had a big announcement on Colbert last pod. That announcement was Vote Save America. Go to votesaveamerica.com. Uh, Vote Save America is basically our initiative to make sure that everyone is registered to vote, um, allow you to find campaign events in your area so you can go help out and volunteer, and 
uh, you'll get a you get to look at your ballot, a sample ballot. It's a one-stop shop, John. Now, the key here, a mm-hmm. couple of things. One, when this idea first surfaced and we were talking about it, we were like, that has to already exist. Turns out it didn't. So thank God Tanya Sominator is here. Uh, she worked at the White House Digital Office. She helped us pull this together along with Shaniko, our political director. Uh, but not all the features we just described are ready yet. It takes a while to put together your ballot. Like the state doesn't necessarily have all the polling locations. So don't get upset if it's not there, but you need to sign up now so we can get you the information that you need when it's all available. It, it's worth it. It's something we think will help people just be engaged. Right now, the, the best thing to do is uh, sign up with your email. And what you can do now is check your voting registration and, and register online. And like you said, Tommy, as the as we get into September and October, all the other good yeah. stuff will be there. But already there's a ton of events listed. So when you actually sign yeah. up, it tells you what you can do, where you are to participate right now, which yeah. is a great first step. And even more importantly, just share it. Put it yeah. on your Facebook page. Tweet it out. Like Tell all your friends about it because we have no stake in this besides democracy. This is a tool we, we paid to assemble because we want to make it easier for people to vote and get engaged. That's the whole thing. Uh, and so we hope people use it. Yeah, do it. Uh, all right. Let's get to the news. Um, there were quite a few developments in the investigation into the gang of dipshits running the government right now. So let's just go through them one by one. Great. On Friday, Special Counsel Robert Mueller recommended in a memo that former Trump aide George Papadopoulos serve up to six months in prison for the crime of lying to the FBI, which he pled guilty to. Mueller says that Papadopoulos's repeated lies about his contacts with Russian officials during the 2016 campaign caused damage to the government's investigation. Tommy, what did we learn from Mueller's filing here? Anything useful? I think we learned, well, with all things George Papadopoulos, it's hard to tell whether he's just very stupid or very stupid and hiding some very bad behavior, but it's certainly a combination of both. Uh, I think a lot of people thought that Papadopoulos was cooperating constantly and offering all kinds of good information. In fact, that's that's not the case. According to Mueller in this document, it says uh, he lied to conceal his contacts with Russians and Russian intermediaries, uh, which the government says uh, prevented them from adequately questioning key witnesses. There's this professor, Mifsud, who was in the United States. Uh, Papadopoulos didn't explain how important he was in real time. So Mifsud went back to wherever he is now, and they were unable to fully question him. So, um, you know, we learned that George isn't like Mueller's golden goose, but he's an important witness. And he also is a reminder that the Steele dossier is not how this whole Russia probe started. It started with an offer of dirt on Hillary Clinton to a bunch of officials, and George got drunk and bragged about it. Yeah, and even though he's not the star witness here, it also, the filing showed just how extensive I thought the investigation is because the memo says the defendant did not provide, quote, substantial assistance. And much of the info provided came only after the government confronted him with his own emails, text messages, internet search history, and other info it had obtained via search warrants and subpoenas. Including a phone he used while he was in the UK, oh, yeah. which he used to uh, talk with this professor at great length. And it was the fourth proffer session where he was like, oh, you want the London phone. Why didn't you say that? Like, this guy is in some trouble. I mean, that is pretty stupid. And and, and we should end by saying he still has legal exposure on potential additional charges relating to, you know, not you know, acting as a foreign agent, conspiracy to defraud the United States, all the other good stuff Mueller's looking into. What do you think, Levitt? George Papadopoulos is what, uh, technically speaking, is a do- he's a dope. He's a real dope. And he's going through quite a little Martin Shkreli phase on Twitter. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, 
I don't think it ends well for him. Yeah, he's like four tweets away from buying a Wu-Tang album. It's, no really, it's really not good. But uh, when you staff your campaign with criminals and the dregs of Republican politics, uh, some of them are going to end up in jail. Right. <laughs> well, let's, well, on that note, let's move on to the next goon. Which one? Uh, the New York Times reported over the weekend that White House counsel Don McGahn has been extensively cooperating with Mueller's team, sitting for at least three volunteers. <laughs> funny, <laughs> sitting for at least three voluntary interviews that have lasted more than thirty hours altogether. Well, you know what I say, John. What's that? What's good for the goose is good for the McGahn. <laughs> The that's, Times, what I, that's what I always say. The Times reported McGahn and his attorney couldn't understand why Trump was so willing to let him speak with Mueller's <laughs> team, but the Trump's attorneys felt their client had nothing to hide. So Trump funny. apparently was also mistaken that the White House counsel represents him personally and is there to defend his interests, not to represent the White House and the office of the presidency itself. Um, the Times followed up with a report on Monday that Trump's lawyers still have no idea what McGahn told Mueller's team when he met with them. Though then there was a sort of a late-breaking Washington Post story before we started recording that said um, McGahn's lawyer in an email said that he does not believe that McGahn incriminated <laughs> the president in his testimony and that, uh, it, in, in fact, he sent an email to a bunch of people in the White House and the legal team saying he did not incriminate him. Also, just, just can we just pause for a moment to say that's where things are at at the White House, where uh, McGahn has his lawyer, hey, can you do me a favor? Uh, I'm having a. I'm getting real weird vibes at work. Uh, <laughs> would you mind just sending an email for me? I think if I send it, it's weird. <laughs> so would you mind sending it? And don't even say that I asked you to send it. Just send it. That says I didn't incriminate the president in federal crimes because I work with these people. Like you don't understand. I work with them every day. It's so weird there now. Well, they. It's funny. I mean, they did say like, well, if he had incriminated the president, if he had witnessed the president committing any crimes he surely would have resigned because i'm sure he's you know, he's a man of upstanding characters again a hilarious standard right. <laughs> i think you'll know the president is a criminal because that's when i'll quit <laughs> uh tommy how significant is this story you know it's hard to tell yeah i mean one initial thought i had when i was reading it was i could finally appreciate how frustrated trump must be with this whole process because he picks up the paper and he learns about how his White House counsel is cooperating far more than he ever knew with uh, the investigation that could take down his presidency. And now he's in a position where if he fires McGahn, it could be used against him in an obstruction case. So that sucks. I don't really feel sympathy for him, but I get why he's pissed. There's some question, though, about the motive behind this leak. Marcy Wheeler, who we've had on the show, um, really strongly pushed back on the idea that McGahn is cooperating here by choice and that he's really doing anything special because as the White House counsel, he's the government's lawyer. He's the, the, the lawyer for the office of the presidency, and he doesn't have the chance to assert attorney-client privilege like you would in a normal case. And Bob Bauer writes about this on Lawfare. It's pretty well-established law. Um, so they're trying to make this argument that they've been incredibly transparent uh, with the investigation. Trump's team loves to cite the fact that they've turned over a million pages of documents, but all, a lot of this is sort of a smokescreen because if you're turning over like a million pages of emails that are news clippings, it's sort of meaningless. Like the key is that Trump still hasn't sat for an interview. Bush and Cheney did during the Plame investigation. So the other key thing that Marcy pointed out was McGahn, and this whole article is about the obstruction of justice charges. It doesn't say if Mueller asked McGahn 
about Russian collusion specifically, even though he was the uh, key lawyer on the case on these issues. So on the ca- on the campaign, I'm sorry, uh, he was the key lawyer on the campaign about these issues. He's like a, a campaign finance expert. So McGahn faces real risk here, and it sort of glosses over that fact. Um, but I, I don't know. I just think it's so awesome that McGahn apparently decided to be really helpful and cooperate it because one day. Trump's other lawyers, Ty Cobb and John Dowd, went to a fancy steak place and, you know, talked a little too loud at lunch. And a New York Times reporter heard them bitching about Don McGahn. And so he was like, well, these guys are trying to screw me. I'm going to go cooperate with Mueller. And this place is just a snake pit and it's going to kill them all. It seemed as if from all the reporting that McGahn believed that Trump may make him the fall guy for obstruction and be like, well, I was given advice by my White House counsel that I could take these actions, whether it was firing Comey, whether it was telling Comey to let Flynn off, all this kind of stuff. And he remembers that John Dean, President Nixon's counsel, um, they tried to set him up as the fall guy for Watergate. Um, Dean obviously uh, pled guilty. to obstruction charges and then cooperated with the government to help bring down Nixon. Um, and so McGahn, from McGahn's point of view, he's thinking, I want to cover my ass. I want to cooperate with Mueller. And and like you said, and if I don't cooperate with Mueller now, he could subpoena me anyway. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's been a lot of reporting about whether Trump thinks Trump did anything wrong. What seems to me is obvious is that Don McGahn doesn't believe that Don McGahn facilitated Donald Trump breaking the law at the White House. And so it would make sense to me that he would try to protect himself. But but you know Bob Bauer made this point about the fact that and and Tommy you made it too that McGahn is required to cooperate. I am less interested in the kind of meeting out of guilt like is Trump trying to drop the dime on McGahn is McGahn trying to protect himself whether it's from what happened during the campaign or what happened in the White House. What I what to me is more interesting and important is the White House counsel had to spend 30 hours talking to Robert Mueller because of all he knows around this investigation and how wrapped up his office now is into a series of investigations uh, into very serious federal crimes, which is, as Bob Bauer pointed out, it's a unique situation for the White House counsel to be in, to, to have been to be, a witness. to be a witness in this way and to continue and, and to be a witness while continuing to play the role of White House counsel. Well, and all the president's lawyers... And a lot of the people in the White House have said for a long time, oh, we don't believe that it's possible that Donald Trump could be charged with obstruction of justice or could be guilty of obstruction of justice or could be impeached for obstruction of justice, right? Like, we don't think this is a real thing. And clearly, Don McGahn doesn't believe that (laughs) because that's why Don McGahn sat down and wanted to cooperate about this. Now, the question is, why did Trump let McGahn do it? And and then that seems to be a whole other set of problems. I mean, like, there seems to be a couple buckets of frustration. One... Everyone's mad that McGahn's lawyer didn't fully brief Trump's legal team on how much he said, how long he said it, et cetera. Two, there was this early strategy uh, where Trump's lawyers, for some reason, believed him when he said he didn't do anything wrong, knowing that he has a long history of lying to everyone, including his family and lawyers. Uh, and figure, and they decided, let's fully cooperate with this inquiry. Uh, and then, you know, the Rudy Giuliani's of the world have shut it down since. McGahn was opposed to that strategy from day one. Uh, it, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like you know, Steve Bannon has been on the record forever saying that participating or cooperating with the investigation was a mistake. So that fight is happening. I mean, in the day, you have a bunch of largely incompetent people who don't trust each other battling it out constantly. It's like it's going to be a horrible outcome. Even, you know, even Trump himself can't help 
but reveal the underlying criminality uh, we're all assuming as part of this conversation because he's saying things like, Don McGahn's no rat. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that was hey, my favorite tweet. Hey, you can't rat somebody out for not breaking the law. That's not how ratting people out works. Also, have you not watched anything? I thought I know you fast forward through the nonviolent parts of movies, but there's been have you not caught a conversation in Goodfellas? The villain in the Nixon White House was starts with Nixon. <laughs> you know, and he's well, like, the, how dare you rat on Richard Nixon? I mean, we can sort of get caught up in the details of like who's ratting out who and everything. Right. Well, I want to like step back for a second. <laughs> All these assholes in the White House are telling Axios that McGahn was a helpful witness to Trump. They're glad he cooperated because mm-hmm. he was helpful. And they said, quote, in the two meetings to discuss firing Comey, the president was instructed by aides that this is not going to end the investigation. It's only going to make it worse. The heat will be turned up. And Trump said, I understand that, but I have no confidence in him. So I'm going to fire him. That's a good fact, said the source. First of all, <laughs> I love can anyone imagine Donald Trump saying, I have no confidence in him anymore. I'm going to fire him. Of course not. But also, like, we know that's all bullshit because Donald Trump told Lester Holt why he fired Jim Comey, and then, which is which is because of the Russia thing. And then the next day in the Oval Office, when they were fucking the Russian foreign minister in there, Donald Trump said to them, oh, the pressure's off me now because I got rid of Comey and he was on my ass about that Russia thing. There are no, <laughs> also, like, well, you know Donald Trump. Uh, what he cares about most of all is competence and in, in the in the people who serve at his administration. Loyalty, disloyalty, help him, hurt him. What matters to him is the faithful execution of our laws. Give me a break. Also, I was re- reminded that Trump tried to get Don McGahn to deny a New York Times report that said Trump had pressured him to fire Mueller. And McGahn had to remind him, like, hey, boss, you actually did do that. Oh, even yeah. though I Trump forgot went, about right, that. And then Trump went and told uh, Rob Porter, another great guy working in this White House, uh, to tell McGahn that if he refused to make a statement denying the story, that he'd be fired. And McGahn again refused. So, like, of course, he and then trust McGahn anybody. told that I mean, to Mueller. Again, yeah. it's like, it's like all the ways he's so meta. Again, ask Comey for a loyalty pledge. <laughs> ask Comey to let Flynn go. Fires Comey. <laughs> Tries to fire Mueller. Um, what else? Uh, tries to get Sessions to fire Mueller. Publicly pressures Sessions to fire Mueller. Says today that he can take over the investigation anytime right. if he wants. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. Again, you, the, 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 the legal thing here is a corrupt intent. A corrupt intent to obstruct justice. It's also like you can step even further back from all of this. You know, so much of so much of the stories. You guys talked about this on Thursday that that so much is happening out in the open, but as if but we're constantly searching for that secret that's going to that's going to make the new difference. It's going to change everybody's mind here again. What we are seeing is extraordinary reporting that the White House counsel has spent 30 hours again and again sitting down with a with an investigation into the president, the White House and his campaign for crimes, uh, including conspiracy and uh, um, obstruction of justice. There's a lot of speculation as to why that interview happened. What's the outcome of it? What does it mean? The fact that it has so embroiled this White House is in and of itself a very, very big deal and actually the only thing we know for sure. So let's talk about the White House reaction to this news. Uh, Trump 
obviously taking it all in stride. Um, <laughs> cool. He, That's a cucumber. He, you know, first said that he's like a sea cucumber, uh, a little threat, and he explodes <laughs> half his body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he said that McGann spoke with Mueller because he allowed it, and then he attacked. The New York Times, John Brennan, Jim Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, Bruce Orr, Jeff Sessions, Hillary Clinton, Bob Mueller, his DOJ lawyers, who he called disgraced, discredited thugs, and compared mm. them all to Joseph McCarthy. <laughs> that was... Um, so does this... Does this seems like the musings of an innocent man. <laughs> my favorite... There were so many good tweets, but my okay, my favorite tweet was Trump saying that members of the media are calling the White House to complain about the New York Times story because it's <laughs> such fake news. It's like it's like Maria Bartiroma or something. Yeah, right. Like maybe he's like commiserating with Sean Hannity at the golf club or whatever. But I love the idea that like beat reporters are calling up the New York, the White House switchboard, being like, "I'd like to call to complain about the New York Times." It's, da- it's Dan Balls. Like, I, hey, I want to shoot this shit with the president. I'm uh, I'm really bummed about this Times story. My, again, it's like everyone's like, well, if he's innocent, you know, he thinks he did nothing wrong. We're told by you know so all of his. Stuff. Staff and reporters. If he doesn't do anything wrong, why is he acting like this? Maybe because he's fucking guilty. (laughs) Or crazy. Or both. Or both. Yeah, I don't know. My second favorite was him encouraging us to, quote, study the late Joseph McCarthy because Mueller and his gang make Joseph McCarthy look like a baby. One, that's a weird image and comment. Two, like, McCarthy's famously harassed and publicly humiliated officials and made claims about them without evidence, i.e. the Trump playbook. And Trump's Trump used, lawyer was Roy Cohn. Trump used employee's lawyer. It's like, it's just, the ironies are so rich, it's hard to even grasp them all. Also, what Donald Trump knows about Joe McCarthy, God, what, what a thing would be to have Donald Trump in a room, hand him a pad and a pencil, and say, write down everything you know about Joe McCarthy. <laughs> yeah. Write to top to bottom. Give me all the facts you've got. I think that he would not be able, maybe double from? Yeah, we, <laughs> What what did he do for money? What year? <laughs> he knows nothing. He was <laughs> study study Joe McCarthy. He never hasn't studied anything since. He was very well known during his... Frederick Douglass's time. <laughs> yeah. They're both they're both getting more oh, well known. My Kevin's brother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, Trump's reaction was typical Trump, uh, and then his lawyer Rudy Giuliani went on the Sunday shows and just crushed it for his client in <laughs> uh, a back and forth on Meet the Press with NBC's Chuck Todd about whether Trump should meet with Mueller for an interview uh, as well as they talked about the exposure Trump might have to perjury charges Rudy said truth isn't truth <laughs> which just you know Chuck just started laughing and uh, it's ridiculous um, but also Everyone's talking about the truth isn't true thing. Rudy also lied dozens of times about the investigation during that interview, uh, only some of it which were fact-checked on air. Love it. You were tweeting about this on Sunday. What, What is Rudy's strategy on these shows, and why does that strategy sort of make him a difficult guest to interview? Yeah. I mean, there's this, there's this fundamental problem of having people like Rudy on television. You know, Rudy has this vague, confusing way of speaking, but it's offered as common sense, like from a place of wisdom, like, Chuck, you're being crazy. Let me tell you how this really works. How it really works is up is down. Everyone's stupid but me. And, you know, as if from a place of wisdom and strength, but of course it's frazzled and hard to understand and, and improvised and full of factually inaccurate renderings of of the case against Donald Trump. Um, the, the problem is, so lying in real time is a lot easier than fact-checking in real time. And, you know, I saw that there was this big pile on on Chuck Todd for, he should have known that the email said this. She should have known and had been ready with that fact. Okay, you know, maybe maybe there was a place for a follow-up immediately right there that he shouldn't have missed. Fine. But but let's not, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't be that officious about this because it's really hard because Trump people lie on television. They do it constantly. And, you know, in print, 
people can break something down, take their time, show where the inaccuracies are, show where the confusing kind of word maze doesn't actually hang together. But in real time, you don't just have to have facts on the ready. For a fact to be effective on television, you have to deploy it, and then it has to show weakness in your opponent. When 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 someone like Chuck Todd or Jake Tapper or, or John Dickerson is facing Kellyanne Conway or Rudy Giuliani or Sarah Huckabee Sanders or any of them, they have to offer a fact, and then you have to see if that fact exposes them some way. I didn't understand until Trump was president that that facts and shame are are tied together, that like facts are the carrot and shame is the stick. That if because these people like when, when you when you throw a fact at Rudy Giuliani, he doesn't seem injured by it. He doesn't seem chastened by it. He doesn't seem weakened by it. He just withdraws to some new generality to get out of the problem in the moment. And it works because shamelessness is an incredible shield on television, because as long as you don't look weak, it doesn't look like you've lost. I, I get that to a extent. I, and I agree that television as a medium makes that a problem because you only have a certain number of minutes to interview someone and they can just bullshit their way through it. But I think we've also seen instances where, and Chuck has done this effectively in the past, and Jake has done this, Jake Tapper's done this effectively. You sort of, at some point when someone's lying to you, you throw out the script for the rest of the questions that you have for that person, and you actually do dig in on the one lie and keep going, going, going. Now, what does it get you in the end? Like, does at the end of the interview, does Rudy Giuliani throw up his hands and say, I give up, he's guilty? <laughs> like, no, that doesn't happen. But, I mean... What happened was, you know, Giuliani said to Chuck, all they knew that a wo- all they knew was that a woman with a Russian name was going to meet with them. They didn't know she represented the Russian government. This was in reference to the Trump Tower meeting and meeting with this uh, the Russian lawyer. And of course, they did know she was a representative from the Russian government because said that, it in the email. So that was stated in, clearly. It was stated email. in an email that Don Jr. tweeted out for all of us to see. <laughs> um, so you know, back when he was George Papadopoulosing on Twitter, <laughs> right? Look, it's not a major error, but you do wonder if what would have happened if Chuck said, "No, no, no." No, Mr. Giuliani, of course, that's not Mr. Mayor. That's not true at all. In Chuck's defense, is like you're like it's hard to have all the facts ready, like at the in the on the tip of your tongue. It's also hard when you're doing a remote interview. You have like an earpiece in, you can half hear them. But just back to like the truth isn't truth comment. Like it's a bizarre soundbite, but the longer statement is sort of worse because he's trying to say that if two people offer a different account of an event, it's impossible to ever know what really <laughs> happened. So Trump shouldn't sit down for an interview. Isn't that literally what happens in every court case where you don't plead guilty? Rudy Giuliani was a prosecutor. What is he talking about? He just like throws different rational like generalizations at the wall all day long. It, it, I mean, it he doesn't seem well. nonsensical. He but that's seem, yeah, he, he seems unwell. Or look, let's just say it. A lot of people speculate that he drinks before a lot of the evening interviews, and yeah, like he's not. But, but this way. is the, certainly lost a step. But this is yeah. This is why though I, it is such a challenge. And I and I and I don't like the way people just watch and wait for the chance. So here's what I would have asked. Like Rudy Giuliani goes on there. It is a blizzard. It is a torrent of bullshit. Some of it are just complete factual inaccuracies. Some of them are kind of. A spurious analysis about how the law works from his experience as a prosecutor, which he's sort of using, like he's sort of arguing from experience in a way that's hard to refute because it's like, wait, 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 that's not how I understand it to be. This doesn't make sense to me. It's it's pure, it's pure gaslighting. Uh, but but there's something else about this too, because it is hard to fact check in real time. It is hard to deal with someone who's who's just making shit up and improvising on the fly. But what I was what I was thinking about in watching these interviews is that the worst thing for a host to say is not, wait, you're wrong, or wait, that's inaccurate. It's, I don't know. So none of these people can ever say during an interview, 
you know, you're making that claim. I'm actually not sure if that's accurate. Something about that doesn't. I, when we come back, I want to I want to go back to you on that or 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 they don't come back from commercial and say, you know what, I should have followed up on this just to verify this claim, because we still demand that the host of these Sunday shows speak from this position of authority sitting between two equal sides. And and, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to it because the shows are based on a kind of naive but honorable notion about how debate is supposed to work. You know, two people show up. They are ultimately maybe biased, but but seeking the truth and coming with faith in their own ideas and battling it out. And they may spin, but you're there to help kind of navigate between spin and fact and help people figure out what happens at the end of this conversation and help them navigate the truth. But when you have someone like Rudy that goes on television and is like up his triangle, well, it's tough. They have not updated these shows yeah. to the reality of a world in which one party um, is not based in fact or truth anymore. And it's just all bad faith all the way down. Right. Um, and I do think you have to ask at some point, the people who do these interviews, you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of having this person on? What is the goal here? Is it to convey a better understanding of the issues to the American people? And because if that's the case, it's not doing so because these people are liars. Right. You know, so is it just tough. is it just to allow both sides on to both give their spin? And if it's lies, then it's lies. And we'll just move on because then, you know, that that's sort of where it's at right now. Right. I mean, it, I, I, I so I'm sympathetic because, you know, all these hosts have talked about it like there has to be a bias towards having officials from the government the white house on mm-hmm. your show and i guess that the, the to me the compromise is i i think you're right i think you do have to have kellyanne conway on i think you do have to have uh um sarah huckabee sanders on or or rudy giuliani is the president's lawyer in the middle of an incredible investigation but it just means that the work is harder you have to be ready for the fact that these people are not just going to spin you they're going to lie to your face so coming attractions, Michael Cohen, who the New York Times reported on Sunday is under investigation for bank fraud of more than $20 million. <laughs> Not good. Um, so anyway, the New York Times reported uh, that he may be indicted or charged by the end of the month. Um, so that's something that may happen. The end else? of the month is so soon. <laughs> it's, it's so, <laughs> so soon. Uh, the Times reported that prosecutors are particularly interested in loans obtained by taxi businesses that he and his family own, and he's also an inv- under investigation for potential campaign finance crimes related to arrangements made to buy the silence of women who alleged to have had affairs with Donald and Trump. And that goes right to Trump. I mean, also, these guys are just sloshing around in money. $20 million? $20 million. You, for this bozo? Also, he's so dumb. Also, <laughs> It's the, so hard to make $20 million legally. This is where our friend... When you're that dumb. This is where John Dean comes back. John Dean, again, was Nixon's White House counsel. He, he started, initially helped cover up Nixon's involvement in Watergate, but later cooperated. The funniest thing that happened this weekend was Michael Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis, telling Politico that he's been in touch with John Dean just to just to talk best practices, just to see how things went back in the day. That must make Trump's head explode reading that. Yeah. S- yes. So C- also, Cohen- John Dean went to jail. <laughs> yeah, but he played down for a lesser sentence. Yeah. Cohen's out there. Um, it looks like he could get charged. And if he does, it, he's already sent quite a few signals that he will cooperate. And they do. And the Times reported this, that any cooperation deal will probably include, <laughs> will almost definitely include, an agreement to cooperate with Mueller on his investigation, even though they're two separate uh, issues. Can I say something, John? Sure. I've had a long running beef with uh, Lanny Davis, Michael <laughs> Cohen's lawyer. And yeah. it occurs to me now that that I'd like to offer an olive branch. Now, I do believe that Lanny Davis represents everything that's wrong in Washington and everything that's wrong with democratic politics. However, if in his role 
as the lawyer for Michael Cohen, he helps bring down Donald Trump. I will apologize. I will uh, praise him publicly. Hmm. I won't. Why? He's getting paid. Yeah. Some other lawyer could have done the same thing. You think? You think? I withdraw you think, my offer. You think, it's, you, think it's a geni- you think it's a genius move to tell Michael Cohen it might be in his best interest to cooperate with Robert Mueller? You, you basically just tickled Lanny with your olive branch and then yanked it back. I take wow, it back. How did he I ever? Love it. How did he ever come up with that one? I take it back, Lanny. You're a sleaze. Um, you okay. can't win me back. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Let's talk about <laughs> corruption, but let's um let's broaden it out from the from the Trump White House to the broader Republican Party. And uh, this is more in the legalized corruption realm. Uh, there was a story in the New York Times over the weekend that basically tells you everything you need to know about the alliance between filthy rich Republicans and Donald Trump. Uh, here's the lead. Republicans are struggling to make the $1.5 trillion Trump tax cuts a winning issue with voters, but the cuts are helping the party in another crucial way, unlocking tens of millions of dollars in campaign donations from the wealthy conservatives and corporate interests that benefited handsomely from it. It goes on to highlight donors like Sheldon Adelson, who got $700 million from the Trump tax cuts and then donated $30 million to Paul Ryan's super PAC. Uh, other donors include oil companies and Wall Street types. And the best part is very few of the super PAC ads that they are funding talk about the tax cut at all because they know it's not popular with mm-hmm. the rest of the base. Do you think that Sheldon Adelson uh, gave Paul Ryan five stars when he added that tip? Or <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> or what? my reaction to this story was like, yeah, no shit, right? Like the Koch brothers aren't good guys. They cut these the Republicans huge checks because they get 10x a return on their investments. So they don't even try to hide it. I mean, my favorite part of this story, check it out online. There's a photo of this guy, Corey Bliss, who's the executive director of the elitist super PAC in the story. And it's like someone called him and said, Corey, the New York Times is writing a story about how we're giving away money to fat cats. And he was like, 
Honey, hold my putter while I run down to the club and get my pink tie and my baby blue supper jacket to pose for this photo. This guy looks ridiculous. And it's like, yeah, they just lean into it. They don't give a shit. And it also says a lot about sort of this, the alliance between the Trump populist nationalists and the rest of the Republican Party that's sort of dying off right now. It's completely phony. It's like Trump campaigns. I'm going to be a champion for working people, right? Uh, His only legislative achievement in office is a tax cut, a trillion plus dollar tax cut for the biggest corporations and rich people. That will raise taxes on poor people. That will raise taxes on poor people. That while he was trying to pass, multiple Republican politicians said out loud, if we don't pass this tax cut, my donors told me their wallets are shut. Uh, that's at Chris Collins, who was arrested for insider trading <laughs> from the White House lawn, by was the way. caught saying my donors are basically saying, get it done or don't ever call me again. So they get it done. <laughs> they pass the tax cut. It goes to all these rich people. And then what do they do? They pour it back into these ads to keep control of the Republican Congress. But they don't advertise the tax cuts in the ads. In the ads, they talk about how brown people are going to come and, 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 and uh, kill your family. They talk, yeah. they talk about MS-13. They talk about immigration. They talk about all the other things. It's they don't the, talk about tax cuts because that's not what the base wants. It's a three-step process. Step one, massive unpopular debt finance tax cuts for the rich and deregulation. Step two, the rich take a tiny portion of it. They fund dishonest campaigns to get Republican voters to go along with the program by using immigrants, black athletes, China, and Democrats with the help of a propaganda network. Step three, slashing of public goods like education, healthcare, transit, roads, and unleashing of private ills by rewriting r- rules around pollution, worker safety, corporate transparency, and all the rest. And, and you know, I was very angry reading it. And... You know, we talk a lot about the sort of dirty deal between Paul Ryan and and Donald Trump, but it really is a that is a side deal to what this is about, oh, which yeah. is ultimately the the bargain between nationalism and capitalism. And the consequence is a kind of pr- like inequality and unfairness. It's an oligarchy. It saps. It is. It is. It's an it's, oligarchy. It saps the bonds of society. I, I really, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in this election, we're trying to prove that this bargain didn't pay off for them and that saving the country depends on that being true. Well, you know what step doesn't occur in the process you outlined is investment in the economy or wage increases or job creation. I mean, what happened is stock buybacks are up to $1 trillion, expected to be $1 trillion this year. That's up 80% from this period last year. So these are not investing at all. They're not creating new jobs. They're buying shares in the company that the CEOs mostly own, that the workers don't own. So they make money and they can flip the stock. And the way you keep it running is with a giant propaganda machine. That is the key, right? And so part of that propaganda are these super PACs and the super PAC ads and all the political stuff they're doing. The other part is Fox News and the media machine that they all run and Breitbart and all stuff. And it is just, it's very instructive that the story the propaganda machine tells is not how free market capitalism will cure all the ills in the world. (laughs) The story they tell is that, you know, uh, liberal elites are you know letting in all kinds of immigrants and refugees to destroy the country? That's, China, that's China's the, the fault. Tell. That's right, why we right. need a trade war. Yeah, but I do a... think that that Democrats need to tell that story and expose that truth and just sort of be honest about what's going on. Yeah. Like, and not know. worry about being having been called class warfare because it's being mm-hmm. waged on us all day, every right, day. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. The Times also had another piece that we should just mention before we move on that connects to this. So the Times piece dives into how the man who has led the EPA's clean air office since the fall, William Wareham, 
is also an attorney who represented a coal-burning trade association that's been pushing for these changes. The administration is taking advantage of a failing in ethics rules that basically allows someone who was an attorney for carbon polluters to draft policy at the EPA from the inside. So that doesn't sound so great. No, it's not. I mean, there were a whole bunch of rules put in place that prevented you from working in an agency that you had just recently lobbied. But there's essentially a loophole here for someone who is an attorney for these provisions. But this guy is the ultimate fox in the hen house. He knows all the things uh, that need to be dismantled for the industry. And essentially, it sounds like he's been going through their wish list during his tenure there. So Again, it's like good for the Times for finding the story and for covering it in great detail. But all these massive, you know, decades long problems are being caused for us in terms of the environment and all these other places while we're focused on the other distractions of the day. So the example, it is it is uh, reading the news. It really was the, some of the most outrageous stories I think we have seen since Trump was president. And it is so much more destructive and so much more damaging than than the kind of Trump show. So what this is about is the fact that when when uh, uh, coal plants make changes, they are supposed to make sure that they adhere to rules around pollution to make sure that when they when they modify or 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 renovate or expand at a plant that that these plants will will abide by rules to keep the air safe that go along with uh, 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 uh regulations that have changed or been expanded since the plant came online, what have you. And basically, this guy in representing this plant is saying, uh, you have to take our word for it in terms of the protections against pollution we put in place, that that the EPA doesn't get to approve it, that the EPA doesn't get to revise it. And um, it's incredibly dangerous because it's basically a license to pollute. And uh, it's something that the EPA's own regulators were against. It's something that the Obama administration was against. there is no justification for it, except if you don't give a shit about the damage it does to people, the years off of people's lives that happen because of coal pollution. If all you care about is rewarding corporate donors and corporate interests that fund your campaign and, and protect you while you're in office. So the final thing that Republicans are doing here, um, aside from all the corruption and the uh, super PAC stuff and, and the propaganda that they're doing to sort of maintain power, has to do with voting and voter suppression. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was some news about that this week. Republicans are moving a plan in Georgia to close two-thirds of the polling places in a majority African-American county. Uh, officials in Randolph County, which is about two and a half hours south of Atlanta, are moving on a plan to shutter seven of the nine polling sites there, a rural county with limited access to public transportation. Uh, the ACLU is fighting the effort, and voting rights activists are getting a petition drive off the ground to fight back. So this is so blatant what they're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, this keep in ha- mind you have Stacey Abrams, uh, who could be the first African American governor of Georgia on the ballot. I mean, it's as direct as could possibly be. Yeah. And Brian Kemp, her opponent, who spent eight years of sec- as Secretary of State in Georgia, removing hundreds of thousands of voters from the rolls. Yeah, he's the top election official in the state, running for governor making it as easy for himself as possible to run for governor. And it again, is disgusting. Yeah, and again, this is happening specifically in states like Georgia, like Texas, um, like North Carolina, where the demographics are such that the um, you know more people of color 
people of color make up a higher percentage of the voting population or an increasing percentage of the voting population. Mm -hmm. And so in order to hold on to power, Republicans are trying in every way they can to suppress the vote and make it harder for people to vote. Yeah, Uh, it's it's, you know, when you want to pursue massively unpopular policies that only benefit a tiny subset of the population, uh, you have to convince a bunch of people to vote against their interests and then stop a bunch of other people from voting who would try to stop you. This all goes back to a god-awful Supreme Court decision in 2013 that gutted the Voting Rights Act. Uh, And this would have been prevented, uh, but instead all these southern states that had a history of doing these kinds of things, these voter suppression tactics like voter ID laws or gerrymandering, are now allowed to enact these proposals without federal approval. And it's another reason why Democrats need to vote and be motivated by Supreme Court nominations because these are decisions that will be screwing us over for decades. The case was so crazy. This was this 2013 case. And basically what happened is part of the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, Southern states with a history of segregation. Anytime you changed the voting laws, you had to seek approval from the federal government. And so therefore, it prevented a lot of these Southern states from instituting Jim Crow-like voting laws. Which they immediately put back in place the second the thing was repealed. Right, and as part of the repeal, John Roberts, writing for the majority in the case, said, well, the country has changed since 1965. You know, there's not as much racism. Things are fine. And so we don't need these special provisions anymore. (laughs) It's all good. Everything's fine. And the second that they announced the case, all these southern states started putting in place these voting The logic was so obscene. The logic was the Voting Rights Act has finally stopped the very pernicious and harmful policies that the Voting Rights Act has stopped. And therefore, (laughs) we no longer need the Voting Rights Act. Just one other point about this. It's a good example of how racism uh, can foster oppression of everybody because they are getting away with this because it plays into the racial animus that they have been using to goad their base and to maintain power, but it is ultimately an effort to suppress Democratic votes to prevent a Democratic governor who would do things like expand Medicaid and hold you know, the, the, the powerful interest in that state accountable. And the only way they can stop this is by using the, the, oldest, <laughs> the oldest playbook uh, in American politics, which is stopping black people from voting. Yeah. And again, I mean, it is a, it, it, this connects directly to the Kavanaugh nomination, too, because um, one of the ways in which Anthony Kennedy was slightly more moderate than some of the other conservatives on the bench was in the voting rights area. And it is clear that Kavanaugh has views that are much more that are much closer to Thomas and Roberts in this case and a lot of the other conservatives than he did Kennedy and the liberals on the court. And these, you know, a Supreme Court hands down a decision like that, that's a big deal. Because basically what we're left with now is states with Democratic governors and Democratic legislatures can institute things like automatic voter registration and early voting and all the things that make voting easier. But a lot of these Republican states, if they decide to do what Georgia did, there's not a lot of recourse with uh, the Supreme Court handing, you know, gutting the Voting Rights Act as they did. Yeah, you can really, you know... We talk about how important the midterms are. We talk about how important it is in part because a lot of these state officials will help determine the representation in Congress in the years ahead. There is this, you you talk about these stories, whether it's the EPA story and them turning over the EPA to industry or the tax story or this voting rights story. And you really do feel like we're at a tipping point where we really are running out of time because I think people at a certain point will give up. They will give up if they see the fact that that no matter what they do, that, that this democracy doesn't work for them, that the rules don't apply to them, that 
that their vote won't matter, they won't have a chance to vote, that they'll be stripped of their right to vote, that that these powerful interests will win in the government no matter what they do. And you just, we have to, we have to stop them. There's just no other, I, 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 I was really, the collection of horrendous news coming out about what these people are doing really clarified that for me. Not that it wasn't clear before, but you know, there's only so many chances we'll get to stop this. That's just, well, that's a that's a it's that's it, a bummer. It's not, it is a bummer, but but we should be honest about it because I think for a long time we weren't honest about just how bad things had gotten, and that's what to me this was a reminder of. Well, the ACLU is fighting the effort; they can get a petition drive. They might be able to stop it, which is good. Um, oh, absolutely! Uh, this one, of course, <laughs> yeah. we should fight to stop this. Of course, I'm just saying that, like, this we get you. That's all we get you. Uh, and we didn't even mention the. Uh, the White House firing the white nationalist conference attending speechwriter <laughs> on Friday in case you don't think that there's enough stories about uh not usually a lot of racial white animus yeah the only was referencing the earlier yeah, yeah the only pervasive. the only white nationalist conference uh, white uh house employees are allowed to attend are in the east room <laughs> uh but once again one way to stop this in this election and to take over not just congress but state houses across the country um is to vote 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 and you know, going back to Vote Save America, one of the best parts of this is you can check your voter registration. Some people were already checking it and saying, oh, I thought I was registered, but apparently I was taken off the voter rolls for some reason, um, which many states are, are doing all across the country. So it's important to check your registration, make sure your friends check their registration. And uh, and yeah, and then, and then make sure to register as many people to vote as you can. Um, when we come back, we will have Tommy's interview with Johanna Hayes. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. On the pod today is Johanna Hayes. She is the Democratic nominee in Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. If she wins the general election, she will be the first African-American Democrat to ever represent Connecticut in Congress. Johanna, welcome to Pod Save America. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, 
you were the National Teacher of the Year in 2016. So first of all, congratulations to you. That is a remarkable achievement. My question to you is, if you had President Trump's undivided attention in your classroom for a day, what course would you teach him? (laughs) I think probably the same thing I teach my students, to be of service, you know, to treat people, you know, invest in your community and treat people, you know, with dignity and respect. It's one of the things that I always put at the forefront of every lesson, you know, to develop deeper understandings of each other, you know, so that collectively we could be better. And I don't see that happening a lot. Yeah. Uh, Another thing I read that you used to teach was uh, kindness and compassion in your classroom. And and I love that. And I think it's so important. Um, Do you think that kindness is teachable in other places outside the classroom? Like, could you teach it in Washington? Because it feels like political policies and debate uh, are really suffering because of a lack of empathy. And, that, and that's certainly a problem that predates Donald Trump. Could you bring that lesson plan with you down to D.C. if you win? I think Washington needs that. You know, we are at a critically important time where I think government needs to be reminded that your job is to represent people. You know, at the bottom line, you really need to understand how policies that are drafted affect the people in our communities. And what I learned as a teacher, I went as as a history and civics teacher, never thinking that this was necessary. And I realized very quickly, it doesn't matter how much students learn if they don't know what to do with that information, if they have no desire to help other people, Mm -hmm. you know, then all of that information is useless. And it worked. You know, my students started to thrive when they realized that this is so much bigger than me. And I think government could use that. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it seems like your students have really have taken that lesson and put into action because I was reading about how many of your former students supported <laughs> you and volunteered for you. What did that mean for you as a teacher uh, to see a kid who you used to have in the classroom in your campaign office, you know, making calls? And, and what do you think it says about a generation of, of kids that are sometimes uh, dismissed as, you know, not paying attention to the world and just on their phones? Like, What does it say about them? I mean, my young people were unbelievable. They were the game changers in this campaign. You know, from the time between the primary and the day I announced, it was just a short 102 days. I had no money. I had no network. You know, I had no call list. I had no political clout. But I had all of these young people who came in for very different reasons, you know, and demonstrated what we had practiced in class so many times. You know, my staff was very small. I had six paid staff and about 70 young people who came every day. And I laugh because people say, young kids are not engaged, they're not involved, they don't vote. And my response is, give them a reason. Right. Because they, I mean, use social media in a way that really changed the narrative of my campaign really helped me to open the door to young people, came in and said, I've never done this before, but teach me how to engage. And pretty much, I think what the difference was, I let them be involved in a meaningful and purposeful way. You know, whatever their gift was, I said, let's figure out how to work and use that on this campaign. You know, they weren't seen as, you know, subordinates or aides. They were in leadership roles. One of the frustrating things about the Trump era is that, um, Policy debates seem to take a backseat to all the other stuff that happens during the day, you know, 50 Trump tweets, whatever it might be. Um, given your experience teaching, what changes would you make to, to federal education policy that you'd like to see implemented if, if you get elected? Well, I think education is very important to me. You know, it, 
it we really need to see it as an investment in our future. You know, and when I say that, it doesn't just mean more money. It means, you know, looking at it as important. One of the things that I noticed from being in my classroom, you know, so much of ed- education is geared towards um, post-secondary education and test scores. And I have so many students who are not interested in going to college. We really have to meet the needs of our changing economy and make sure that students are career ready, you know, offer different choices and multiple pathways to success. You know, there's this conversation now that school prepares you for college and that's the only way to be successful. And there are so many young, we have more students graduating high school and less entering college, you know, and and that type of work needs to be seen as valuable. I think another thing that is very important is, you know, to make sure we cover the entire spectrum. We need to make sure that children are getting early childhood education. You know, you can definitely tell the difference when you have a student who was exposed later to education formally, you know, who didn't have, you know, those social skills and those phonemic skills. They come in and it's almost like they never catch up. And when we talk about the spectrum, I think what this administration is failing to do is really recognize that we have to meet students where they are. You know, I teach public education. You get students, no matter who they are, they come in with all of their needs, all of their challenges, all of their gifts, and we have to be prepared to receive them, whether that is special education, whether that is talented and gifted education, whether that is regular education, bilingual education. But we have to have, you know, make sure we're servicing the needs of all students and make sure that teachers are prepared for that you know, that our teacher preparation programs are adequately training teachers to meet the, the challenges that they're going to face in the classrooms. I would be remiss if I didn't say um, community colleges. I'm a person who started in a community college. You know, it was almost baby steps for me to get to where I was. And I think so many of our young people would benefit, you know, from programs in community colleges. Yeah, agreed. Um, you've talked about a lot of the life experiences you bring to this job. Um, you talked about you know your experience in community college. You've talked about living in public housing. You've experienced homelessness. Uh, you've been a single mom. Uh, do you think you know you can bring those experiences to bear to help Connecticut voters? Does it help you connect? Uh, and do you think that the the Democratic Party has been hurt because it hasn't been better connected with with people affected uh, by those issues and by the policies uh, you're discussing? I absolutely believe that my life experience can help me to connect, but it's not just that. You know, the totality of those experiences frame my decision-making. Like, I know what it was to experience all of those different phases in my life. And what I've learned and what I think was evident when you look at the communities where I won in the primary, so many other people are experiencing these same things. You know, just because I grew up in an urban center you know, in poverty doesn't mean that I had the monopoly on poverty. We have some rural communities where people are experiencing the exact same thing. You know, we have many working families who are living paycheck to paycheck. And I really want to make sure that all of their voices are included in the conversation. And I think that as a party, we've fallen short of that. Now we have this huge gap where it's almost like there's this emergence of all these new groups of people. And what I'm saying is they've always been there. You know, and shame on us for not engaging them sooner mm-hmm. and hearing them and listening to them and, and making sure they felt included because now we wouldn't have, you know, these abrupt shifts that are happening now. Right, right. 
hopefully one of the the big stories out of the 2018 midterms will be that there are more women and people of color serving in Congress and in state level elected offices across the country. Um, you had never run for office before you decided to run this time. What made you take the plunge and what advice do you have uh, for other people who might be listening who are thinking about throwing their hat in the ring? Well, for me, you know, I looked at my students, I looked around me and I've always helped in the community. I've always done things in- incrementally and tried to touch people one at a time. And I realized, you know, over the last couple of years, I don't want to use the term frustrated because I'm not doing this because I'm frustrated. I'm doing it because I think when regular people, if I want my voice to be represented and I don't see it being represented, then I need to be the one to do it. You know, be the change you wish to see. And I was always telling my students, if be part of the solution. If you don't like what's happening, figure out a way to be a part of the solution. And I think I'm at a point where I have to take my own advice. And one of the things in my campaign, you know, in my ad, there's this line where I say, if Congress starts to look like us, no one can stop us. And just what you said, if this is a representative democracy, and it is truly representative, people should be able to find everybody represented, you know, mothers, teachers, farmers, working class people, old, young, veterans, conservative, you know, progressive. The only way to make, to have um, true solutions and problem solving is for all of those voices to be represented at the table so that when we finally come up with an answer, we can say we've considered all of the people in this community and this is something that everybody can agree on. That can't happen if people aren't even at the table. You know, and and we really Mm -hmm. have to do a better job of that, making sure everyone feels like this government includes them. That is a great message. Now, one last question for you. Uh, There has been a contentious debate here at Crooked Media about Connecticut pizza. John Lovett. (laughs) John Lovett had some very harsh words for Connecticut pizza. I was wondering if you have if you have a message for John uh, and other Connecticut pizza haters out there that you that you want to leave us with. You're not going to like my answer. Please. (laughs) First of all, Connecticut is the best pizza, but there's a family-owned pizza shop in Waterbury called Dominic and Pia that is like the best. They've been there for 50 years, and it's no slight to Sally's or Pepe's, but if you're from Waterbury, it's Dominic and Pia's. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, One other question for you. Why does every town in Connecticut end with berry? There's Waterbury, Danbury, Canterbury, Middlebury. I mean, the list literally goes on and on. Did you guys just run out of names? Like, what happened here? I think so. Let's keep it simple. Okay. <laughs> keep it simple. We had other things to do. Like, Concise. We, we had other things to do, like um, come up with the compromise on the Constitution so we didn't waste our time, you know, naming <laughs> towns. <laughs> All right. A concise, honest answer. That's a great place to leave it. Johanna, thank you so much for doing the show. Uh, if, if people want to learn more about your campaign, where should they go? I have a website, johannahayes.com, and on social media, johannahayesct. And again, I have this tremendous social media team that saturates you know, digital with all of our information, everything our campaign does. We do a lot of voter education. I do civics chats and teach people you know, how to register, how to get involved, how to fill out an absentee ballot. And I think that really propelled my campaign because I taught people how to engage. You know, and, and that really translated on Election Day. People were turned away from the primaries and they knew, go to the registrar, ask for the moderator, you know, ask for a provisional ballot. So education was a huge part of my campaign and we try to do that uh, digitally as much as we can. So I encourage people to go check us out on johannahayes.com or johannahayesct on social media. 
All right. Everyone follow at Johanna Hayes CT on Twitter right now. Or and I just got verified you... today. <laughs> oh, oh, right on. Congrats on the blue check. Mark. That means I'm a real airline. person. <laughs> <laughs> Johanna, thank you so much for doing it. I'm going to follow you right now. Thank Click. you. And uh, I'm excited about your, your campaign. I can't wait. Until I'm excited, too. It's unbelievable to see that, you know, when when people come together and elevate their voices, that it, it matters and it means something. I think that's such a valuable lesson for all of these young students who invested in this campaign to see it come to fruition. I think these will be engaged voters for life as a result of this experience. That's awesome. Also, everyone should watch the YouTube of your uh, Teacher of the Year <laughs> Award event with President Obama because... <laughs> You know, that's just, it was just a half hour of pure joy. Still makes me really smile fun. just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> that thing made him smile, too. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you so much for doing the show and, uh, and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Have all a great day. Thanks again to Jahanda Hayes for joining us today. And, uh, you know, we'll talk to you guys on Thursday. Do you think I was too negative? <laughs> no, no. I think people, uh, people got to get out there and vote or else that is the outcome that will happen. Yeah. I think it's okay to leave people with it on their stomach sometimes. I think Johanna that we just heard was very inspiring. All right, so I I sent them to the interview feeling down, and then we they came out, and now you brought them back down again. <sighs> we I'm not bringing them down again. I'm just commenting. And you know, hopefully between now and Thursday, uh, maybe there'll be a Manafort verdict. Oh, it could be happening Ooh. right now. Could be happening while you're right listening. Right now, to us. we just don't know. Come on. Come All right, everyone. Come on, jury. Bye. <laughs>